good morning again. Uh, I think what tickled me so much about what Mickey said um, a while ago is reminded me of this, this old preacher in Mississippi who told me one day, he said, when I baptize folks, I like to hold them under till they panic just a little bit. <laughs> he said, it makes it more meaningful and memorable. <laughs> we don't do that, but made me think of it. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. Numbers chapter 13 would probably be the best place to go to start today. You know, we're in this series uh, of Old Testament overview, trying to take a high altitude look at the story of redemption in the Old Testament. Uh, We believe that understanding the gospel that we looked at so closely in our study of Romans helps us understand the Old Testament better. And we believe that understanding the Old Testament also helps us understand the gospel better. Um, And all of this is in an effort to know the Lord more so that we love him more, so that we worship him more, so that we praise him more and obey him more. So, so far in this study, we've seen creation and then we've moved on to the flood. And then from there, we moved to the calling of Abraham. That will come back up again today. Uh, Then we saw uh, Abraham and his descendants have to move to Egypt and we saw what happened in Egypt. And then last week, we started into the Exodus um, and we started trying to come out of Egypt into the wilderness and wandering around. We didn't get as far last week as I had hoped to, um, but we're going to pick up pace and maybe gain a little extra altitude today so we can see a little more in one shot. Basically, what I want to do to get us started today is to, to show you that it should have been a fairly straight shot from Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai to receive the law, and then it should have been like straight to the promised land. But there was a hiccup between Sinai and the promised land, and that's where we're going to start today. This hiccup that happened at Kadesh Barnea, um, which really caused the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. So uh, we were were on our way into the promised land uh, after we saw what happened at Sinai, and then this scene happens in Numbers chapter 13 that we want to talk about today. So that's where we're going to start today. So let's pray together before we dive in. God, we're we're very thankful for today, and, and the... The encounter that we've already had with you in small groups and in singing and in baptism. And God, we we long for that to continue as we engage your word. We want to see you. We want to encounter you and hear from you. We want you to give us understanding. We want you to keep us on track. God, I pray that you help help me to stay on track, uh, to say what needs to be said. Um, And I pray that, that what people hear today is better than what I preach today. I pray that they hear from you through your word today, and are changed by its power, by your power, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so similar to the last few weeks, we're going to see these kind of snapshot scenes, try to uh, understand what's going on, and then draw out w- at least one quick application from each of these scenes. And the first one is Kadesh Barnea in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And rather than read all that to you, I basically just want to tell you the story. So it goes like this, that God... Uh, told Moses to send some spies into the promised land, this land that he had promised to give them. And I want to remind you of that. When we talk about the promised land, that's a loaded phrase. That, that is a meaningful phrase. It's not just the descriptor of a land, a certain geographical land. It is a, a reminder of a promise that God has made. This promised land is the place that God had told uh, Abraham he would give to him and his family. So remember that when we reference the promised land. God said, once you send some spies in there, check it out and, and see what it's like. And maybe you know how this story goes. There were 12 of them that went uh, into the promised land and they 
scoped things out and they saw what was there. And it truly was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a fertile land and a pleasant land. And uh, in fact, one thing that stands out in that part of the story are the grapes. There's this part of the story where they gather some grapes up, one cluster of grapes that's so big, two men have to carry it on a pole in between them. You ever seen grapes like that? No, you haven't. Me either. Um, But these grapes were fantastic and they carried them back. And so these 12 spies go out and they check it out and they come back to the people and they give a report. And basically the report goes like this. God was right. It is a special land. It is a fertile land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Check out these grapes that we found while while we were there. It's an incredible place. But there are some giants that live there. The people there are absolutely enormous. In fact, we felt like grasshoppers when we saw them and two of the guys named Joshua and Caleb say let's go let's go let's go into that land and let's take that land the Lord has promised to give it to us and 10 of those guys say no 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 no. we can't we can't go into this land we cannot conquer this land we are not strong enough we are not able to go and conquer these people did you not hear us say that there are giants in the land And the two guys, the two brave guys say, you're not hearing us. God is with us. He has told us. He's giving us this land. He will fight for us. These giants are no match for us. Let's go. And all the people said, no. No. You're crazy. We're not going with you. In fact, they said, find us a leader who will take us back to Egypt. We're not going into the promised land. We want to go back to Egypt because at least there we had food to eat and we had a place to stay. And these two guys are just bold the whole time. And they say, no, let's go. God has told us he's given us this land. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And the people say no. In fact, they say, we'll kill you, Joshua and Caleb. Keep your mouth shut or we will, we will kill you. You see what's going on here? Well, about this time, God shows up, speaks up, and he's angry about this. He's angry about this, and he tells Moses, he says, I'm going to wipe them out. Step back, Moses. I'm going to wipe these people out. This happens over and over and over again. He says, they are rebellious, they are stubborn, they have weak faith. I'm going to kill them all, and I'll start over with you, Moses. And over and over and over again, when this happens, Moses steps in and says, God, don't. God, don't do it. Forgive them. Forgive them of their sins. And amazingly enough, God does forgive the people for their sin at Kadesh Barnea. But there are consequences. God speaks very clearly to them about the consequences of their rebellion and their lack of faith. He says, hear me clearly, none of you, none of you adults... This entire generation, none of you will go into the promised land. You're going to wander around in this wilderness for 40 years until all of you die, and then I'll take your children into the promised land. I will give to them the promise that I made to Abraham, except for two of them, Joshua and Caleb. He said, I'm going to spare those two, and they'll lead the way into the promised land. This is a pretty incredible story, isn't it? In fact, it becomes kind of the quintessential story uh, of, of people's stubbornness, people's rebellion and people's lack of faith. In fact, when you read on in the Old Testament and even on into the New Testament, you will constantly see this being brought up again, basically saying to the people, you're not going to pull another stunt like you did at Kadesh Barnea, are you? You're not going to hesitate, are you? You're not going to be stubborn, are you? You're not going to rebel, are you, like your parents did way back at Kadesh Barnea? Well, God forgives them, but there are these consequences. And they didn't know They didn't know this big lesson, that if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? That's why we sang that song today. If our God is for us, then who could stop us? 
They didn't learn that lesson. They didn't know that lesson. And it's a lesson that we must learn. It's a lesson that we must know. Romans chapter 8 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who then will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Like If God is for us, then who could be against us? And if God is for us, then we need to move forward with boldness and confidence, knowing that no one can stop us, right? But the children of Israel said, oh, they're giants. Yeah, yeah, God has promised to give us this land. Yes, God has fought for us over and over and over again. But there are giants in the land. They should have moved forward with boldness and confidence. But instead, they will spend 40 years wandering in the desert because of their stubbornness, because of their rebellion. So that's the scene at Kadesh Barnea. And the lesson we need to learn is that when God is for us, nothing can stop us. The next scene that I think is significant that we need to talk about a little bit is a scene that happens in Numbers 16 and 17, and we we would call it Korah's Rebellion. Korah's Rebellion. As the people began this 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, there's immediately a challenge to Moses' authority and leadership. About 250 guys get together and say, Why should we listen to you, Moses? Don't the rest of us have just as much authority as you do? And they begin to challenge his authority. And in the end, to make a long story short, God makes it abundantly clear that these men were in the wrong and that the people should indeed follow Moses. And he made this clear by having the earth open up and swallow the men that led this rebellion. Basically, Moses says, if Korah and his buddies die a normal death, you know, they get pneumonia or they get sick and they die, then... then then it'll be clear that they were right. But, he says, if God does something new, like he opens up the earth and swallows up Korah and his buddies, then you'll know that they were in the wrong and you should follow me. And guess what happens immediately? The earth opens up and swallows up these guys. How incredible is that, right? And, and yet the people still grumble and complain about Moses. Even when God affirms his leadership with this miracle, the people still grumble and complain. And in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 45, it says this. God says, get away, Moses, get away from the congregation that I may consume them instantly. You see this again? The people grumble, the people complain. God says, Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy them. And they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put it at the fire from the altar, lay incense on it, then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took, as Moses had spoken, ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand. Listen to verse 48. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. 
But those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died on account of Korah when the earth opened up and swallowed them. Then, then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. Don't you love this? Over and over and over again, God says, I'm going to destroy them. And over and over again, over again, Moses goes to God on behalf of the people. And this picture of Moses and Aaron standing in between the dead and the living, being a mediator between God and man, and the plague was checked. This sounds a little bit like Jesus to me, doesn't it, to you? That Jesus steps in between the dead and the living, and it stops with him. This is a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's another picture later on in Numbers chapter 21, this business about the bronze serpent. And and for for the sake of time, I'm not going to tell you this whole story, but I will ask you to read it this afternoon. Starting in Numbers chapter 21, you'll see rebellion. You'll see wrath from God. You'll see a weird provision for salvation. Basically, some snakes come into the camp and they start striking people and the people die when they're bit by these snakes. And God says, have Aaron make a bronze snake and lift it up. And when the people look at the bronze snake, then they'll be saved. And Jesus then, in John chapter 3, verse 14, like the next door neighbor of the most well-known verse in the church today, the next door neighbor is Jesus saying, I'll be lifted up like that serpent. And when people look to me, they'll be saved. Jesus makes a reference to this bizarre story in Numbers in John 3, 14, talking about himself and how when we look to him, we have salvation. Um, essentially, essentially that the one to fear is the one who can save. The one to be afraid of is also the one who can rescue you. Um, so check out the bronze serpent story in Numbers chapter 21. All right, so some crazy stuff happens as the children of Israel are wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Those stories are just a, uh, just a gleaning of the incredible stories that happen there. And I'll tell you why I'm struggling with this uh, sermon series is I don't know which stories to leave, but I want to tell them all to you. I want you to know them all. And so I hope that what will happen as a result of this is you'll say, wow, if that's just a sampling of the stories, I want to read the rest of it for myself. And I hope that you'll do that. I hope that you'll spend some time in God's word filling in the blanks that I'm leaving as we do this high altitude flyover. So 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. The generation that sinned at Kadesh Barnea died. All of them died. Even Moses died. Only Joshua and Caleb remained from that generation. And at the end of Numbers, we see God deliver the plan for going into the promised land. We've wandered around, they've paid their due, so to speak. The whole generation has died. And then God says, here's the plan when you go into the land. Here's the plan, conquer and divide. Conquer and divide. We usually say divide and conquer, but that's not the plan for God's people. They're going to conquer the land, and then they're going to divide it up amongst the tribes of Israel. Conquer and divide. Look at what God says in Numbers 33, starting in verse 50. This is the plan. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, let me stop there and give you a quick geography lesson. You've got to get across this Jordan River to get into the promised land. It's kind of a barrier. It's a, it's a border of the promised land. So he says, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land 
by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. But, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as though... As I thought to do to them. Catch the picture? Go into the land and take it. And take it by force. And there will be bloody battles. And you're going to destroy things. And you're going to, de- you're going to kill people. And you're going to go and take this land and then divide it up. That's what he tells Moses is the plan. Well, Moses eventually dies. And Joshua takes over in his place. So now we're in to getting ready to go across the Jordan into the land and do it. And Moses, our fearless leader, has died. And Joshua rises up to take command from him. Look at it in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua will be the one to conquer and divide the land among the tribes. And this is, a, and this is good. Good stuff here. As the baton is passed to Joshua. It says, now it came about... After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man... Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the left or to the right so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What's the theme of that? Be strong. Be courageous. Why? Because you've got so much talent, Joshua. Because you're such a brilliant military mind, Joshua. Be strong and courageous because you're such a leader, Joshua. No, be strong and courageous, Joshua, because I'm with you. Same way I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Therefore, be strong and courageous. Joshua's going to take the reins and he's going to lead the people across the Jordan River. And something incredible happens at the Jordan River. How do they get across the Jordan River? Same way God is always crossing, crossing bodies of water in these days, right? We're not going to build a bridge. We're not going to make a boat. God is going to cause a wind to come and stop the water from flowing for a while. And the children of Israel are going to go across that river on the dry land. Ha! Talk about an encouraging day, right? We were just little kids. We were just little kids. Guys, we were just little kids when we came across the Red Sea like this. Look, God's doing it again. He's doing it again, only this time we're not running from something, we're running to something. In other words, in the same miraculous way that he delivered us, he is bringing us into the inheritance. This is the way it works in the gospel as well. 
It is by grace you have been saved. By grace, God has miraculously delivered us from our sins. And by that same miraculous grace, he sustains us every day. And by that same miraculous grace, he will take us home. He doesn't start with grace and then leave us on our own. He starts with grace and gives us grace for every day. He gives us grace even for tomorrow, I think, right? And we're thankful for that. And we see that in this story of the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River. Grace brings us out and grace sustains us every day. The next big scene is in Jericho. So there's a big part I'm leaving out here that you'll have to read for yourself. Um, but, But once they get across the river, basically in order to conquer the land, the first stop is Jericho. And Jericho is an enormous city military city, fortified walls. This is going to be a serious challenge for God's people. They're not very experienced militarily. They don't really know a lot about fighting. And God says, here's the battle plan, Joshua. For six days, once a day, I want you to march your troops around the city and then go back home, go back to camp. Day after day, six days, don't say a word. Don't say a word, don't blow a trumpet, don't rush the walls. Day one, walk around, go back to camp. Day two, walk around, go back to camp. Six days, that's what I want you to do. Then on the seventh day, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give the men swords and trumpets, and I want you to have them march around the city six times. No, let's make that seven times, right? Seven times I want you to march around the city, and on the seventh time, I want you to blow your trumpets, and when you blow your trumpets, you'll see what I'm about to do. So Joshua says, all right, guys, here's the plan. It's crazy, But God said it. God said, here's the plan. Six days we'll march around once. On the seventh day we'll march around seven times. Then we're going to blow our trumpets and see what happens. And so that's what they do. They get ready. They march around. They march around on the seventh day. I mean, Joshua says, let's go. We're going to do it seven times. Then we're going to blow the trumpets. But listen to me clearly. Listen to me carefully. When we go in, when we go in and take Jericho, you don't take anything for yourself. You're going to see gold, you're going to see silver, you're going to see all kinds of spoils that you're going to want to take for yourself. But God has said, don't take anything for yourself. So what do they do? They march around seven times, seven times, they blow their trumpets, and you know what happens. The walls come uh, tumbling down. It's incredible. These fortified walls of Jericho crumble before the children of Israel. They all rush in from every side, and they take Jericho by a mighty work of God. Hallelujah for that, right? God does what they could not possibly do, and he gives them the land. And this is to be the pattern. This is to be the way the land would be conquered. Not strategic military might, but the mighty hand of God working for his people. This is the way it would go. But there was one guy named Achan, one man from amongst the children of Israel named Achan. When he got into Jericho, he took some gold. He took some silver and he hid it for himself. He took it for himself and he went off and hid it. Well, the next day, nobody knew about this. Nobody knew Achan had done this. But the next day, they were needing to go fight a place called Ai. If Jericho was like New York City, Ai was like Muddy. (laughs) Ai was, if you're from Muddy, don't take offense. (laughs) Sorry. Should have moved to a different part of the world to, to make that, right? It was not fortified, it was not big, it was not powerful, it was not highly significant. And Moses, I mean Joshua, I'm going to keep doing that, sorry. Joshua uh, sent some spies to check out Ai, and they came back and they said, 
this is a piece of cake, Joshua. We don't need to send the whole army. Two, 3,000 people will be enough for this. And so that's exactly what Joshua does. He sends 3,000 soldiers to Ai, little insignificant Ai, and they get whooped. Ai whoops up on Joshua and his people, and they all come running back. They all come running back. Several of them died, and the rest of them come running back. And Joshua goes before the Lord and says, What are you doing, Lord? What is going on? Did you bring us out of Egypt? Did you bring us into the promised land so a place like Ai could kill us all? What are you doing? Maybe you should just take us back to to Egypt. Joshua says this to the Lord. And the Lord says to Joshua, get up off your face. Get up off your face. I know what has happened in this camp. One of your people have taken something that they should not have, that I told them not to take. And this is why you lost at AI today. And in fact, until you fix this problem, I'm not going to help you at all. He says, here's the plan. God says to Joshua, here's the plan. Get them all together and bring them to me tomorrow morning. And I will show you which one has sinned. And when I show you, you've got to deal with him swiftly. And so the next morning they get up and everybody comes before the Lord. And in a way that only God can, he narrows it down by tribe to clan to family and then to one man named Achan. And everyone is looking at Achan. And Joshua says, what have you done? And Achan says, I saw the gold and silver. I wanted the gold and silver. I took the gold and silver. And I hid the gold and silver. It's in my tent under the rug. So Joshua sends some men to check out his tent. And they come back with gold and silver, just like Achan had said. They took Achan and his family, all of his stuff, even his animals, outside of the camp, and they killed them all there. They burned them all there. They raised up a heap of stones over them all there. Achan paid for his sins. And because there was such a huge heap of stones, generations would pass by that area and say, Dad, what's that? What's that big pile of rocks there? And that would give a dad an opportunity to say, oh, son, you listen to the Lord. You do what he says. Even when it seems insignificant, you do what he said. I'll tell you a story about a man named Achan whose family is under that pile of rocks because he didn't listen to the Lord. Well, after this was dealt with, a huge lesson was learned from the children of Israel. And then they began to walk a little more carefully with the Lord. And he was with them once again, and he helped them. In fact, they went back to Ai, and they won a great victory at Ai. This is how it would go in the promised land. When they trusted God and when they followed him, he helped them and they had victory. And when they did not, he did not and they did not. Catch that? He wasn't with them and he didn't help them and they didn't have victory. And so they learned to walk closely. So long story short, they conquered the promised land. Just like that. Just like that, they conquered the promised land. Man, this is bad. I think all my notes are gone. You guys are in big trouble. <laughs> we could now be here for the rest of the day. Long story, long story short, they conquered the promised land. Then they divided it up. You can read about it on in Joshua. God did what he said he was going to do. God gave them the inheritance he said they would give them, and it was all the work of the Lord. So I want us to fast forward to the end of this story of the conquering of the promised land. It's in Joshua chapter 24. 
We're going to spend a significant amount of time here because I think it does a good job of getting us up to really high altitude and looking back on everything we've talked about up to this point in this series of sermons. I hope somebody saw that and thinks, I'll fix that before next week because I don't know how to fix that. Joshua 24, listen to this, what God's word says. It says, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Shechem is a highly significant place, is it not? Shechem is the place where Abraham was when God said, I want you to leave everything and follow me and go into the land that I'm showing you and I'll give you that land as inheritance. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll bless those who bless you. The very first time God said things like that to Abram, he was in Shechem and he made an altar there and made sacrifices to the Lord. So this is where it's happening. It'd be in a lot of ways like us going to uh, Plymouth Rock, like kind of to the beginning of everything for us here in this land. So it says, he gathered them to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, the speech that he's about to give is a high altitude history lesson of redemption. This should not be new to you. There are a couple of stories that I haven't told you, but you've probably heard them before. Joshua gives a review of the history of God's people. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Let's pause there and say that is significant. That is significant that Abraham, when he was chosen, was not seeking after Yahweh. He was not serving Yahweh. He was serving other gods, and God went after him and said, I'm choosing you. You come serve me. This is God's choosing of Abraham. It has nothing to do with Abraham. It has everything to do with the Lord. It's surprising grace. He was serving other gods. It says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led them through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. That's a bizarre statement, is it not? The promise was, I'm going to make you a great nation. promise was, I'm going to make you a great nation. And how did God deliver on that promise? 14, 15 kids Abraham had? One kid. I multiply your descendants and gave you Isaac. Just the one. Maybe the lesson here is not only that God's grace is surprising, like when he called Abraham, but it happens, his plan happens at a gradual pace sometimes. Sometimes God works more slowly than we would like. Sometimes he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He gives you one kid. And then that kid has two kids. And then the next one has 12. Now we're on to something, right? Sometimes the work of God happens at such a slow pace that we don't appreciate it as the work of God at all. Is your life like that? I mean, sometimes it shows up like a bolt from the blue, and it's undeniable. Just big things happen overnight. But a lot of times the work of God happens so slowly we don't even perceive it. And when we don't perceive it, we don't appreciate it. And so it is very good for us occasionally to look back because we can see that slow movement over time in the rearview mirror better than we can in real time right in front of us. And that's exactly what Joshua is doing with the people. He's reminding them about how God's plan has un unfolded very slowly. He says, I multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac, verse 4. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Again, that's strange. Esau's not the son of the promise, but he gave him a specific land. But Jacob, he says, had to go down to Egypt. Was that a good thing? No, did good things happen to God's people when they were in Egypt? 
No, it was a tough time. It was a difficult time. And sometimes that's the way God's plan unfolds for us, right? It's not always a straight shot from the promise to the promised land. Sometimes it's a detour into Egypt for 400 years of slavery. But God's at least honest about it, right? In fact, I read one scholar says that's the kind of God you can trust. The kind of God you can trust is the kind of God that says it's not always going to be easy if you follow me. The kind of God you can trust is the God who says take up your cross every day and follow me. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. You cannot trust a God who tells you everything's going to be cake and roses if you just follow me, and then it's not cake and roses. But our God tells us the truth about this world. He tells us the truth about this life. Sometimes we go to Egypt. Verse 5. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. (laughs) Read it, that's exactly what it says. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. That's putting it mildly. All of your parents died in the wilderness because they were rebellious at Kadesh Barnea. You buried all of your family, all of your parents, you buried them in the desert. You lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you into the land among the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. And they fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. But I sent and summoned him, summoned Balaam the son of Baor, to curse you. you got to read that story. It's crazy. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And every time when I was a kid, my pastor added, and also the mosquito bite. <laughs> Thus I gave them into your hand, and then I sent the hornet before you, and, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored. Listen to verse 13, good summary. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. That's a pretty good overview of what we've talked about, right? Joshua hits all the highlights, explains to them how God's grace is surprising, the pace of it is gradual, that these things happen in some strange ways, and by big power, God delivers them. And I think maybe the thing that stands out the most, when he goes back and he looks back on the entire history, who's the main character in this history? Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? Is it Joshua? No, if you look at the verbs... God is consistently saying, I did it, I did it, I did it. In fact, I've got them all underlined in my Bible. I'll read them to you quickly. I took, I gave, I gave, I sent, I plagued, I did, I brought, I brought, I did, I brought, I gave, I destroyed, I delivered, I gave, I sent, I gave. God is saying, make no mistake about it, Joshua. This is not about you. This is something I have done. So he recounts this history, which is good for us. It's what we're trying to do here. He recounts all this history, but then he drives them to a decision. He brings the application in the very next verse. Verse 14, he gets to the application or the response to all of this truth. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. 
So he's, he's bringing them to a point of commitment. God has already given them the land. They've conquered it. They've divided it. And now he's saying it's time to commit. Joshua is saying to the people, it's time to commit. And the commitment he is asking them to make is a logical commitment. I want you to see that first. In verse 14 he says, now therefore. Because of everything that God has done, it's a logical commitment to worship him and serve him. It's not a blind leap of faith. God has already proven himself strong in your life. Therefore, you should serve him. It's a logical commitment. Secondly, it's an exclusive commitment. Look what he says next. He says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Put away the old idols. Get rid of all those other things you have picked up along the way. This is exactly the way Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount. He says there are two ways. There's a wide way and a narrow way. There are two men, a wise man and a foolish man. Decide who you're going to be today. There's a way that leads to death and a way that leads to life. You cannot be walking on both of those paths. You've got to commit, and it has to be an exclusive commitment. Joshua says you can't worship Yahweh and have all these idols as well. In fact, at another point in the history, he says, dig a hole and bury those things and leave them behind. And you worship Yahweh only. And that's the way it is with Jesus. I'm telling you guys, we've picked up a lot of things along the way as we've wandered in the wilderness of this world. Picked up a lot of other things along the way. Sports, relationships, money, position in the community, pride. We've picked up a lot of things along the way. And I want you to hear today the Lord saying, you got to get rid of all that and just serve me. You can't serve those other things and serve me. He deserves and demands exclusive commitment. Exclusive commitment. So maybe there's some things in your life that you need to dig a hole and bury. It's it's a logical commitment. It's an exclusive commitment. And it's a cautious commitment. Look what happens. He says, Put away the gods of your fathers beyond that that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and served the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, which they served when they were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need some men that will say that today. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said to him, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went among all the peoples through whom, whose midst we passed. The Lord drove them out before us drove out before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Don't you love that part? Joshua says, serve the Lord and only him. And the people say, we're in, Joshua. We will do it. And Joshua gives the strangest response. The next verse he says, Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy God. (laughs) They say, we want to serve him only. And he says, you won't. You can't. This is, not, this is not good evangelism, is it, guys? I want to follow Jesus. You can't. You won't. I want to get baptized. Nope. Joshua wants them to proceed with caution. 
Look at how it unfolds. The people say, we will, we will. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts toward the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be a witness against you that you do not, uh, that you do not deny your God. So he asked them to make a cautious commitment. They say, We want to serve the Lord. And he says, Do you really know what you're signing up for? And then he takes all these measures to make sure they are proceeding with caution. So he's asking for a logical commitment, an exclusive commitment, and a cautious commitment. And then the way the rest of the story goes is in verse 28. Then Joshua dismissed the people to teach each to his inheritance. All right, you're going to serve the Lord? Go serve him in your land. Do they do it? Nope, stay tuned for next week. Stay tuned for next, next week when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Just a few days later, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. So here's the application today. Number one, what does your history look like? Joshua takes the people and he says, look back a little bit, guys, and watch what God has done. question is, what does your history look like? How have you seen his faithfulness? How have you seen his grace? How have you seen his protection? Do you have a story like Israel had a story? I do. And I need to remember it regularly. What's your story look like? Second question is, who will you serve? Decide today. Joshua said, you choose today whom you will serve. If it's those gods, go serve them. If it's, if it's the God, serve him. As for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. I think today is, needs to be one of those days. Decide today whom you will serve. And maybe there are some things that you must get rid of to do that. Maybe there are some relationships that you must get rid of to do that. Maybe there are some, oh man, thoughts that you must get rid of to do that. Maybe there is some job that you must get rid of to do that. Maybe there's some pride that you must get rid of to do that. Maybe there's some sin that you must confess to do that. What are the things that you need to get rid of today in order to serve the one true God? What idols do you need to bury today so that you can serve him exclusively? And then the last question is, are you serious about it? Are you serious about it? Are you serious to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, Mickey, Luis, Listen to this. Are you serious about saying you want to follow Jesus? Or is this going to be like a New Year's resolution? We're almost into June. How many of you have kept your resolutions that you made back in January? And so many of us treat our commitment to follow Jesus just like that. I'm telling you guys, it can't be like that. You've got to be serious about this commitment. This is a lifelong commitment to follow after Jesus. And don't think I'm picking on you two guys. I'm wanting them to feel uncomfortable as I talk to you. Because we all need to be reminded of that. How many of you stood up in that water 30 years ago and said, I'll follow after Jesus with everything I've got. And you've forgotten all about that. And you've picked up so much other garbage along the way, you can't even tell where Jesus is in your life anymore. Maybe today is not the day for first-time commitment for some of you, but recommitment for some of you. 
to say, I will follow him and I will serve him in serious, lifelong commitment. Maybe today is that day of commitment for you. Let's stand together and pray. God, we want to be able to look back and see your faithfulness on display and rejoice in it and respond to it. God, I thank you that you have not called us to blind leaps of faith, but you have established who you are. You have shown us who you are, that you can be trusted, that you can be depended on. And so we want to make a logical commitment to you today. And we want to make an exclusive commitment to you today. So we ask that you'll show us what other things we have picked up along the way that we need to get rid of. Show us what idols we need to bury so that we can follow you exclusively. So that you are not in competition with anything in our lives. There is nothing that compares to you. I pray that you teach us more of what that means today. And God, I pray that that you help us to make a cautious commitment to you. A serious commitment to you today. A lifelong commitment to you. God, we are sorry for the way way we treat you like a New Year's resolution. The way we follow you sincerely for two weeks and then we forget all about you. God, we want to follow you always, every day, every moment. So bring us to that point of commitment. God, there are surely people in this room who need you for the very first time. And I pray today that they will see you with arms wide open. Loving them in spite of their sin so much that you sent Jesus to die for their sin. God, I pray that men and women and boys and girls will respond with repentance and faith. That they will turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And that you'll receive glory in it all. In Christ's name.